around the table of the king, some of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record for us that Last Supper, Jesus with his disciples, the Passover meal we call it. Now, 1 Corinthians 11 has Paul describing that Lord's Supper as he heard from Jesus and uh, explains it with a little more depth. In verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 11, I'm just going to mention it. You don't need to turn there just yet. Well, you don't need to turn there. Let's put it that way. Verse 25, Paul says, quoting Jesus in the Gospels, that he said, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. New covenant. Someone has said that the Bible is its best encyclopedia. The Bible is its own encyclopedia. Which means that God hasn't given us a a dictionary or a glossary or something where we, we take a word and we look it up in this other book to find out what a word means in Scripture. One way in which we do that is context, of course. Short context, close context, but but also we look to see where that word or that phrase is used elsewhere in Scripture and what is meant by it. So if you open that box up, the box of New Covenant, those two words there in 1 Corinthians 11, because we realize it's no unimportant thing for Jesus to say, here's the cup, okay, we, we get that. The church gets the cup. We're supposed to do this meal like he did with those disciples at that Last Supper. But this is the cup of the new covenant. We know what that means? Well, you might think about going back to Jeremiah 31 as you open up this box of the new covenant and explore down maybe the rabbit hole to mixed metaphors. Jeremiah 31 is one place of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, that mentioned a new covenant to come. And a few things it said there. It said, when this new covenant comes... God will put his law within his people's hearts. He will write the law on their hearts. I think a contrast from the old covenant law, which was written on what? Stone. Tablets of stone outside of you. Cold tablets of stone. Good law, yes, but there's no power in that, right? As opposed to God writing it on your heart, your desire box. He writes it on the law. He says in Jeremiah 31, the new covenant means, I will be their God and they will be my people. Remember throughout the Old Testament, God is saying, I'm your God, remember, don't forget it. I'm your God, remember. You be my people. And then they would always go astray. They would stop being his people, essentially. Not fully, not completely. Because God wouldn't let them go. But in this new covenant, he will emphatically be, unchangeably be their God, and they will be his people. And in Jeremiah 31, it says in this new covenant, he will forgive their sins. Their sins he'll remember no more. That's kind of looking back about the new covenant. We can also look forward. Turn to Hebrews 12. Hebrews is a book that mentions this new covenant a few different times. And really, in a sense, that's the message of the whole book. Hebrews as a whole, really, one way of looking at it is to say that it's a book about old versus new. Old covenant versus new covenant. What's the difference? And another part of that, specifically a pastoral part of that, is this plea. You Jews who have come to believe in Christ, don't go back. 
Don't get bored with Jesus or just assume salvation, but now go back to the old covenant shadows as though they were the reality, as though power were really there, as if that were the true religion now. Don't go back to the old as if Christ isn't enough. So tonight I want to camp out on one passage in Hebrews which expounds on the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Or we could call it, what difference does Jesus make? And again, let's not lose focus. We're here tonight for a Lord's Supper meal. Jesus said of the cup, it was the cup of the New Covenant. The cup symbolizes this plan of God and reminds us that all of the old was pointing to the new. We celebrate tonight, not just my forgiveness of sins, but the completion of his plan. We celebrate tonight not just me getting to go to heaven or me being loved by God, but we get to celebrate tonight his victory, the fulfillment of his promises, a better covenant than what they knew for thousands and thousands of years. Hebrews 12, let's start in verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command. If even a beast touches the mountain, it'll be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. But you, you Christians, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who's speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he's promised Yet once more I shall shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Again, let's keep in mind why this letter was written. It's an exposition of God's plan, specifically contrasting the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and pleading with those who were in the Old and have now found themselves embracing Christ and entering the New. The writer is saying, don't turn back to the old. Don't turn back to the shadows. There is enough for you here in Christ and infinitely more. So four things I want to say about this passage. 
and really our conversion experience. We have come to Mount Zion, not, not Mount Sinai. That's the first. We've come to Mount Zion, not Mount Sinai. Remember, that's the contrast that's at first here. Two mountains. First, Mount Sinai, <coughs> excuse me, was the giving of the Ten Commandments, but it really symbolized, in a sense, the whole Old Covenant. The way it's used here, Mount Sinai, and the giving of the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, isn't just about those Ten Commandments. The question is not whether some remain or all remain necessarily. The point here is the Old Covenant. He's talking about the Old Covenant, and Sinai is a symbol for the Old Covenant. So how does he talk about Mount Sinai? Well, first he says it's a physical mountain. Verse 18, you can touch that mountain. Mount Sinai, you could go and you could touch it. Look, look at it. Don't trust me. It says, it's put in the negative. You have not come. Those who have come to Zion have not come to a mountain that can be touched. In other words, with Sinai, you could go and you could touch it. It's a physical mountain. It's where God is. Some are closer to it than others. And yet, while it can be touched, what well, you touch it and you die. It's a fearful mountain. It's fire and darkness. Go, go read there the passage in uh, Exodus. And you see it again repeated in, I think it's what, Deuteronomy 4? Something like that. Uh, it's repeated there again, and you see the thunder. You see the mountain quaking, shaking. You hear the trumpet blast, a, a whirlwind, a loud voice going forth. God said, if even a beast touches the mountain while I'm on it, that beast is going to die. You touch this mountain, and you're surely going to die. And they're not really interested in this. It's fearful enough. They're, they're not just, they're not curious. Like people might be curious about a tornado that's far away. Ooh, neat. What do they say? Moses, you go and talk to him. He seems a little angry. <laughs> You go talk with him. We don't even want to know what he's saying up there. We want, it, we want the noise to stop. It's hurting our ears. It's scaring us. It's scaring our children. It's scaring my, my husband. He peed his pants. <laughs> you go talk with him and tell us what he says. So the whole scene is one of heaviness, of unapproachability. The purpose of the law here is showing us sin. And his holiness. And the conflict between those two. Sin and holiness means you cannot draw near. Now I know this seems awfully negative about a part of scripture. A part of God's plan, right? Isn't the writer of Hebrews here describing Sinai in terms that to us sound negative? Well, it's not the only place. Turn to 2 Corinthians 3. 2 Corinthians 3. Here Paul begins in verse 6. I won't even read these verses. I just want you to see in your Bible certain key words along the line here. In verse 6, Paul mentions that they're servants of the new covenant. Right? So he's talking about the new covenant. But then in verse 7, just glance down. He contrasts the new covenant with that which was graven on stones. You see that? Graven on stones. That's the Ten Commandments. 
And again, not used here just as those ten specific laws, but as the whole package of what was revealed in the Mosaic time, the Mosaic legislation, we sometimes call it. And then verse 7, he tells us that that was a, quote-unquote, ministry of death. Moses was a ministry of death. Why? Well, because you fall short. The purpose of the law was to show us death, to show us our sin, to show us our trouble. In verse 9, he calls it a, quote-unquote, ministry of condemnation. In verse 10... Look down, he says, that package, that covenant, that system had a glory. There was indeed a glory about it, but it's a glory, he says, that is being far surpassed by the new covenant. It had a flicker of glory. Moses' face was even glowing, he says. There's proof of glory. Moses came down and his face was shining. But we're talking about something quite different here in the new covenant with Jesus And so verse 11 says the glory, that glory of the old covenant, like Moses' face, was fading away. The light was fading away. So the old covenant's glory as a whole, he says, is fading away. Now Paul speaks similarly in Galatians 3 and 4. He speaks similarly in Romans 7, where there it says, Law came to you to even compound sin. Right? Paul says there, I didn't know about covetousness until the law said, don't don't covet. And then I couldn't stop coveting. It's like the cookie jar that's out. You know, if mom didn't say, while I'm gone, don't eat any of my cookies, you wouldn't have thought about cookies. But now that she said, don't eat any of my cookies, you're transfixed with cookies. Cookies are spinning around your eyeballs. You want cookies. Like Cookie Monster. Because... She said, don't. That's the nature of sin, and that's the purpose of the law, to show us that. Colossians 2 is another place that shows us that. In fact, let me just read this one to you. Colossians 2, verse 16, where Paul says now to Christians, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Now, those are all some key parts of the Old Covenant, right? What you eat, what days you celebrate on, certain festivals, those things. These things, he says, the very next verse, were a mere shadow of what is to come. A shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now, shadows are good. I've said to folks before, think of the way shadows work for you when they're useful. You know, if I'm here at the church late at night and I'm in my office working and I think I'm the only one here and I see a shadow go across my door, that tells me something's coming, right? And usually if it's late at night, that shadow is the shadow of Terry Ash. (laughs) Calling you workers late at night, can you please help out on Sunday, right? Now, once Terry steps into the doorway, I don't go, oh, Terry Shadow, I love you. Hey, Terry Shadow, high five. It's down low, so you got to do that. 
No, I speak to the substance of Terry now, not the shadow of Terry. I look to the substance, the reality. The shadow just told me something's coming. It even helped me see kind of who it was. Maybe if I looked really carefully, I would, maybe if he stopped too, I could, I could maybe see on the floor the outline of someone who looks like Terry Ash. I don't know. I'm not going to describe what that shadow might look like. <laughs> Glasses, whatever. You know, you could see, oh, oh, maybe that's so-and-so. But it doesn't really give me the person. Now that's what the writer of Hebrews has been saying to. Let's go to Hebrews 10 again. Well, actually back up to Hebrews 8. And let me just show you some examples. To show you that this is the repeated theme in Hebrews. In chapter 8, verse 5. There, the old covenant law. Chapter 8, verse 5 was a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. And you don't have to turn there. We'll stay in chapter 8. But by the way, chapter 10, verse 1, says something so similar. The law is a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things. You see? The Terry Ash shadow illustration is a good one, I think, in light of chapter 10, verse 1. Back to chapter 8, though. Look at verse 7. The argument there is, if there was nothing wrong with the first covenant, then there would be no reason for a second covenant. Or chapter 8, verse 13. In making a new covenant, he's made the first covenant obsolete. And it's growing old and ready to disappear. Now look at chapter 12, verse 16. Well, just in passing, the end of chapter 12, verse 16, the writer of Hebrews makes this statement, don't be like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. In light of what we've seen from Hebrews already, think of Esau in terms of Old Covenant, New Covenant. Esau gave up his birthright for a meal. I think what that's pointing to is don't give up the New Covenant for the Old Covenant shadows. And by the way, you could go to chapter 13. Maybe you just want to write this reference down. Verses 9 to 14. And boy, you've got some mighty, meaty, and sometimes mysterious things to unpack there. And if you read them in the same light, I think you'll see that they're saying some very similar things about Old Covenant versus New. But let's go back to our main passage, chapter 12. And now we'll get to verse 22 about Mount Zion. Remember, Mount Sinai is physical. It's a mountain you can touch. Mount Sinai is a mountain that you can touch, but you'll die. You can't go near. But Mount Zion, Mount Zion is a spiritual mountain, verse 22. You've come to Mount Zion, which is the city of the living God. That sounds plain enough as it is. Sounds like maybe Jerusalem. Except he says the very next phrase, the heavenly Jerusalem. Oh, He's talking about a spiritual city here, isn't he? He's talking about heaven, the heavenly realm. He's talking about what Luke had been calling. Remember our study on Luke. What Luke had been calling the kingdom is what here is being called the heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the place of the myriads of angels. You see that phrase? That means Christians now, they don't go to Jerusalem where their God is, 
They are now in the heavenly Jerusalem. They are now, spiritually speaking, in the presence of angels. They are now, spiritually speaking, within the general assembly, verse 23. They are a part of the church, which is the firstborn who are in heaven. They have come not to a place, not a religious place, not a religious city, not a religious building. They have come to the judge himself. They are now with spirits that are made perfect. They have been made perfect. Not hope to be made perfect. Not if the sacrifices work this year will be made perfect. And they've done this, of course, because of the perfect sacrifice, Jesus. Verse 24, the mediator of the new covenant. That's the second point. We have come through one mediator, Jesus Christ. And in verse 24, the writer of Hebrews here tells us that Jesus' blood is better than the blood of Abel. What's that mean? Better than the blood of Abel. Well, if you go back to Genesis 4, you see that Abel made a sacrifice there. And remember, Cain, his brother, was jealous because Abel's sacrifice was what? It was accepted. God accepted it. That's a good sacrifice. God said, check, approved. FDA approved. This sacrifice works. But does it work? No, it was accepted, but it didn't do anything. That's the point. It was acceptable to God, unlike Cain's. But it didn't do anything. It didn't take away Abel's sin. It didn't take away anyone's sin. No sacrifice of the old covenant never removed anyone's sin. That's in Hebrews. Jesus' sacrifice is better than the blood of Abel who was killed for his good sacrifice. Abel's sacrifice represents that whole covenant, whole old covenant sacrificial system. And if you look back to chapter 10, verse 3 of Hebrews, you see that the repetition of the sacrifices in the Old Covenant proved that it wasn't working. Instead, it was, look at it, a reminder of sins. The ongoing sacrifices of the Old Covenant had this purpose. You keep sinning, it's still a problem. It still hasn't gone away. You sinned again this year, And sacrifices still need to be made. These sacrifices aren't ultimately heavenly, spiritually taking away sin. And this mediator, Jesus Christ, speaks again. Look at verse 25. Listen to him. He speaks again. And this time, he warns from heaven. His pulpit this time is not Mount Sinai. Glorious, majestic, big... Fearful as it was, now he speaks from heaven. And how much more should we listen now when he speaks from heaven? If those from Mount Sinai did not escape his judgment when they ignored what was going on in the mountain and what he said in the mountain, remember they went and they made a golden calf. They worshipped another god as he was being God and revealing himself as God. How much more will we be condemned when we ignore the one who preaches from heaven and preaches specifically about the offer of his son's blood? The message now is not, you cannot come near. The message now is, come, come near. Come near because of the one mediator. 
third thing I want to see in this passage, the last two more quickly, is we've come to an unshakable kingdom, thirdly. We've come to an unshakable kingdom. On the one hand, when this kingdom came, look at verse 26, it shook heaven and earth. You see that? It not only shook the earth, that happened at Sinai. Sinai shook. I mean, what's it take to shake a mountain? I don't know. I, I can't shake a good anthill. I can't. You jump on an anthill, you'll knock some of it down. You can't get the whole thing to shake. That takes power. That takes energy. To shake a mountain, that's big. That's cool. That's powerful. Well, he not only shook heaven and earth in the coming of this new kingdom. Uh, sorry, he not only shook earth, he shook heaven and earth. I mean, it's like the sun was shook out of heaven. That's what it means here. On the one hand, when the kingdom came, it shook heaven and earth. On the other hand, now that it's come, it's different than the old covenant in that it cannot be shaken. Verse 27, cannot be shaken. How much more glorious is this kingdom, is this Mount Zion, in that, in a sense, heaven was shaken as it came down. In another sense, now that it's come, it can't be shaken at all. It can't move. It's steady, it's secure, it's a rock. Which means for us, confidence. It means confidence. We have now a hope that should be unshakable. And I think it means something, too, about an eternal focus. right? A confidence that isn't easily shaken. Maybe a perspective, too, about what we love. You see in verse 27 how it talks about everything on earth will one day be shaken. We don't love the things that can shake. We love that which ultimately cannot be shaken. The things that can shake will one day shake loose and be destroyed. Christ's kingdom is the only thing that cannot be shaken. The fourth thing then, the last two verses, we have come to worship God. Verse 28, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. And then it says, this is now our offering of acceptable service. There are three words there that are hinting at the old covenant system. Offering, acceptable, service. Except now the acceptable service is not, not a bowing, it's not a burning, it's not a smelling, it, it's not a killing, it's not a bleeding. The acceptable service now is just pure thankfulness. That's your priestly work now. Every Christian's called to be a priest. Their priestly work is that they are in the holy of holies in the temple of God. And they themselves are sacrifices. Sacrifices of thankfulness. Sacrifices of praise. So verse 28 says, let's come now with reverence and awe. And then verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. What? Just when maybe you thought the writer was saying, the old covenant was scary, but now we have a mediator, so it's fun. It's easy, it's gentle, it's welcoming, it's sweet. He says, 
Worship God with thankfulness. Okay, I got that. That sounds sweet. That sounds gentle. I'm thankful to the Father through Jesus. Do it with reverence and awe. Okay, I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, we treat him respectably. He's holy. He's lofty. He's above my thoughts. For he's a consuming fire. Whoa. He's a consuming fire. That doesn't mean those who worship him, those who are in the mediator of the new covenant can be consumed. I think that's a constant threat. Like he's a Wizard of Oz sort of God who's ready to just blow up and burn whomever gets in the way or aggravates him. But he's nevertheless still a consuming fire. And that's the God that showed us mercy. That's the God that gave us this mediator of the new covenant. That's the God who's powerful enough to give us a shaking heaven, a shaking earth, and a kingdom which cannot be shaken. Stand in awe. Worship. Tremble. Do you tremble at the staggering reality of your forgiveness? Remember that old hymn? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there? Sometimes I want to tremble. Trembling at the horror of the brutal cross and Christ's shed blood. I mean, it's almost as if we should say, you've given too much, you've done too much, you've put too much work into this thing for me. Tremble it. Tremble at the unshakable security of Mount Zion and the God who is unshakable behind Mount Zion. Something so solid and so powerful and so secure and so unthreatened should, in a sense, be scary. Our only hope is that we're on the right side. Do you tremble that your worship is a drawing near to him? Remember the old covenant. That same God who quaked Mount Sinai is the same God of all eternity. That God, now in the new covenant through Jesus, says, draw near. Not you may not draw near, but draw near. There is something holy about that. There is something sobering about that. Do you tremble that you join the heavenly realm in your worship of God? That when you pray on a spiritual level, you brush angels' wings. Before you think of Michael Landon or some chubby baby as the angel, read Revelation 5. And see their angels with eyes covering their bodies, six wings, shouting with a loud voice, blowing loud trumpets. In Isaiah 6, it quakes the whole temple, their voice does. You pray with them. You sing with them. You worship with them. It has not yet come that heaven and earth are united, but on a spiritual reality, these spheres are intersecting when we do our heavenly work.
Do you tremble before a God who can shake every created thing? You tremble before the God who says the Sandias are like dust upon the scales. I mean, he touches the earth and it melts. Mountains are nothing. The ocean depths are nothing. The greatest armies are nothing. They're a speck of dust. They're a drop in the bucket. Do you tremble in light of your, and I'm speaking personally here, your light, trite thoughts about God? Do you tremble because you're far too used to your salvation. I don't know about you, but I, I would never say this, but I'm sure there's some little heartbeat within me that assumes, of course he would have forgiveness on me. Of course he would. Things have generally gone pretty well. Of course he would be good to me. Of course he'd be merciful. But what if he hadn't? We tremble at our waywardness and our self-reliance and our self-glory. Hey, do we tremble at our guilty consciences? We tremble at the reality that we're so slow to believe. Proof of that is we walk around in guilt all the time, forgetting that there's a mediator who is far better than the blood of Abel. This kingdom he's put me in is unshakable. He can't shake me loose. He won't shake me loose. Our God is a consuming fire. And that consuming fire says come through the mediator. And now that we come, boy, there's no looking back, right? The shadows are shadows and Christ is the substance. Our worship now is in the worship of thankfulness and praise and recognition that he is powerful and awesome. A holy God that has drawn near to us. So let's bow and think about the Lord's Supper specifically. This is a meal which hopefully symbolizes everything I just said. And that shouldn't be a leap. Jesus said, this is the cup of the new covenant. And I think what we've done is tried to say, all right, let's open the box of the new covenant and what's inside. And Hebrews 12 is one of the things inside that box of the new covenant. Thank God for his plan. In his plan, he has not only brought to fruition the plan that Jesus would come and die in our place and be resurrected in the third day, but that he'd be with us even to the ends of the earth. And even though we're sinful, he's merciful and patient and he's, he's sympathetic. And part of his sympathy for us is that he's given us this meal of remembrance. He knew we would be forgetful people. He didn't give us a meal of rebuke. Isn't that amazing? When you forget, paddle yourself. Here's what you do. Hit each other. Here's what you do. Just pinch yourself or something. What did he do? He said, when you forget, come to this table and remember that it's not you. 
It's his blood. It's his body. It's his pain. He's already borne it. So this supper, we're told in 1 Corinthians 11, is a time for us to come and examine ourselves. We're told to look inward and see, see, see how we are. We say every month. We're not supposed to pass that test of examination. We're not supposed to say, yeah, it's been a pretty good month, so I think I'm worthy of this. We're worthy of the body and blood of Jesus when we recognize our need. This is a meal for Christians. So if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, you don't know that Jesus has been your substitute payment, that he's your mediator, that you've been forgiven, that he's brought you into this spiritual realm called his kingdom where you live and pray and work and worship. Then we'd ask tonight that you just don't partake. Feel free to just stay in your seat even though others will get up around you. Watch. Pray. We're glad you're here. It's a great time for you to see what Christians do and to hear what Christians believe. Christians, we come to this meal having examined ourselves and found ourselves to be helpless. Just like the law had its purpose to drive us helpless and hopeless to a Savior. To, to show us our sin. So the examination serves that purpose where once again we see the answer is not in me if we examine rightly. But this meal is more than just the bad news. This meal is great news. That Christ is a hope that's greater than our sin. That Christ is a hope that is outside of us, not inside of us. That's why it's a meal that is outside of us. It's a historic meal. It's been, it represents something that's happened already. So come tonight as a sinner, a bold sinner, because you are a believing sinner. And in Christ, you are now a righteous sinner, mysterious as that is. Jesus died for the sins of forgetfulness too. And he died to bring us to this mountain, this unshakable mountain of Mount Zion. And on this mountain, we worship. We worship the true and living God with awe, with reverence, with fear. He's a consuming fire, and yet he's ours. Draw near to him in the celebration of the salvation that's in Jesus through the picture that we have here. A picture of his body, a picture of his blood to show forth his death as a symbol of our only hope. Take a moment to talk to God on your own about these things.
And God, we thank you. We thank you, thank you, thank you that Jesus came to die in our place. We thank you for the promises of old that you'd send a son. We thank you for your purpose in giving promises to Abraham that he, in his seed, there would be blessing for the whole world. We thank you, Lord, for giving the law and for giving it for so long that we today might see in your story, your purpose to show us our need for a savior. What a long chorus of your eternal song was made up of this law. And yet, Lord, it's a shadow which comes to its fullness in Christ who fulfilled the law for us and died in our place to pay for every time we have failed your law, your ways. We thank you for Jesus. So for those here tonight, Lord, that aren't Christians, I pray maybe even in this hour you'd give them faith. I pray for those here, Lord, who are believers, Lord, that you would increase faith, increase joy, increase worship, increase confidence to your glory, Lord. We pray, Lord, they would sense the unshakableness, not of their faith, but the unshakableness of your kingdom that they're in through faith. Lord, we pray for a sense of your nearness, scary as that might be when we really think about it. What an awesome thing, a consuming fire that we have drawn near to on a spiritual holy mountain, a heavenly city with angels and saints of old. Lord, we believe your plan is sure. We believe that you will fulfill it in due course. In the meantime, we thank you for this meal to remind us again of Jesus who died for us. We pray in his strong and saving name. Amen.